Hello and welcome to The Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. My name is Roy, and I'm a Westaholic. Thank you. I haven't been up here for a while. I think I've forgotten how. I can never quite express the feeling I get when I'm with you this way. Uh, I don't know what the feeling is, so that's why I can't express it. Um, I feel more comfortable in the rank and file, in the troops, in the groups, in helping others one-on-one. Is everyone here an SA member? That's incredible. Um, And um, the last layer of my lust is what I call ego lust. And that's the most insidious. And so uh, I want to surrender that. If I lose my balance, there's a loose board under this podium, and, and <laughs> it's giving me the creeps. Anyhow, um, I, I want to uh, tell you I'm grateful to be here, and um, they assigned me a topic. It happens to be what I was thinking about. So I want to thank the, the Florida people for giving me this topic. I say yesterday, today, and tomorrow. There's one thing that we have not yet discovered in SA. I might as well tell it as long as we're here. We've got the A book down pretty pat, most of the chapters. There's one chapter we haven't touched yet. The families. We've got the wives, we've got S and on. Hey, but what about families? Before I get into my talk, I would just like to make a plea that when we do our twelve step work, let's see if there's some way we could do what the early Alkies did with families. It wasn't just the guy they picked up. They went and saw the wife and the children. They were part of that. I just had the privilege of just doing this uh, a few weeks ago, and this is why it has struck home to me, where the first thing we did, we got this low-bottom triple loser, drug addict, alcoholic, sexaholic, who had been trying to make the essay program, couldn't do it, suicidal, and a wife and two children, And so one of the first things we did was ask if we could talk with the wife. And we did. And it's it's amazing what you can get when the woman talks. You know, I like to get them to the side and say, without the man there, without the sexaholic there and say, okay, you know, what's going on? Give the give the woman a chance when she now uh, in a lot of cases, maybe in most cases, it's not appropriate because the wife doesn't know. But man, when they do, uh, let's figure out a way to bring the family in it. The six-year-old daughter, uh, you know, could be affected. The wife is affected. But anyhow, it's a it's 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 an element of our work that that we're that we're missing. 
Uh, it's very tricky, but let's let's not forget let's not forget the spouse, especially the wives and uh, and the children. Um, I want to lead with my weakness tonight. Uh, I lost my sobriety last week, last Friday. A week, a week ago, Friday. My righteous indignation sobriety. And it was a bad slip. And I hadn't, uh, you know, the A book talks about righteous indignation being the dubious luxury of normal people. Well, it's not a luxury for me. And some guy came up with a huge truck in our private driveway, and uh, uh, I'm always afraid they're going to crack the asphalt, which we have to replenish by contract. And so I, I, I let this poor young man have it, and I just, I just told him and what business he had coming on private property. And what I was saying was absolutely true. But the way I did it was I, I got drunk. I took a drink of wrath and righteous indignation. I lost it. And uh, I went in and I knew immediately the disturbance hit me. And the disturbance was like a lust attack. Because that's just another form of lust for me. I could feel the disturbance immediately. I went in, did a written inventory on it, prayed, asked for God's will, knew what I had to do, went out before the guy left his delivery, made an amends to this young man, and uh, I said uh, I was wrong in uh, how I treated you. He stuck out his hand and he said, I believe in God too. And so I was a chastened person. And I felt the disturbance, even though I made the amends and felt great that it was restored, that I had the chance to talk to him before he left. I felt that disturbance. I was still affected. My body, my brain was affected by what I had let into my soul. I would hate to think what would happen inside my soul today if I did that with lust again. And I can do that in this room right here without batting an eyelash. I'm one look away from a drunk. I'm so grateful I'm sober today. I'm so grateful that I have a desire not to lust. I'm so grateful that the tyranny of fear-driven sobriety is gone. That my sobriety today is joy-driven and love-driven from the one who takes me where I am, just as I am. Yesterday, our program began in 1935 when Bill and Bob got together. The Oxford group was a group that believed in the four absolutes, honesty, purity, unselfishness, and love. It was a Christian-based group. They didn't like the religiosity. Dr. Dr. Bob and Bill took, the, took some of the concepts, the six steps, or the basis for our 12 steps, carried them over in, in, into, our, uh, into our, our program. At that time, alcoholism was an epidemic. And 
the medical profession and science had no way of dealing with it. The high tide of immigration had brought in people from, and, and the big cities, the big city environment that was spawning the new prostitution and was spawning the new lust had spawned uh, the new alcoholism. And uh, uh, in the midst of this impossible situation, lightning struck and God revealed the solution to two men. It was first just one step. Work with others. That was all it was. I mean, 1935, Akron, Cleveland, and New York City work with others. One step. And do you know that that's really the step, the basic step of our program? Let me ask you a question. Why, aren't, why don't we have the strenuous work with another alcoholic that they did? What's wrong? We'll get to that later. I'd like to read from page 17 of the big book. And it's already been read this day, but it goes like this. We of Alcoholics Anonymous know thousands of women and men who were once just as hopeless as Bill. Nearly all have recovered. They have solved the drink problem. The tremendous fact for every one of us, they're talking for the first hundred, is that we have discovered a common solution no doubt about it whatsoever. We have a way on which we can absolutely agree. That's the legacy of this program. They recovered from drinking. They didn't get drunk anymore. They didn't drink. Um, I'd also like to read from uh, page 17. We know thousands of men and women who were once just as hopeless as Bill nearly all have recovered. They have solved the drink problem. The tremendous fact for every one of us is that we have discovered a common solution. We absolutely agree. Um, let me ask you a question, and I may be getting some audience reaction here tonight. Why was AA so utterly successful in the beginning? They had the 50% recovery rate. Why was I, I don't know why it was so successful. Except for what? Possibility. That someone was doing for them what they could not do for themselves. Isn't that what happened? When you read chapters one and two of the big book, and I urge everyone to read those chapters periodically, and if you put them down for a while, it's probably good, but get back to them and you'll see them in a new light. Uh, the incredible fact that in the lives of these of these men, there was a God surrender and a spiritual awakening. Now, when we just read from the foreword of the big book, the 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 numbers that we get on that page are something like. Uh, 150,000, 6,000 groups. After 17 years, 150,000, over 150,000 sober members, 6,000 groups in 50 countries. Well, SA Today is 16 years old, 16 and a half years old. What's wrong? Uh, do you see the point I'm trying to make? Um, and I think... There are many more 
lust and sex addicts today than there were alcoholics in their day. So it's something to think about. And, and we may be getting to that, getting to that later. Anyhow, now, when the 12-step program came about, one of the best books describing it is Not God by Ernest Kurtz. It's, it's an unbelievably well-documented book on the history of AA. And the title is very informative, Not God. That's the basis of the whole, whole program. We have to get to the place where we're not God so that God can come in. It's the whole idea behind the program. The surrender of steps one, two, and three is the not God admission. And if we can't get to that place, the rest of it won't work. But let me just say that, that uh, the AA phenomenon was countercultural. Politically, Tradition 7. Organizationally, Tradition 9. Professionally, Tradition 8. Religiously, uh, Steps 3 and 7. Concerning our world, Tradition 2. Non-promotional, Tradition 11. Okay, why do I say that? I mean... I mean, just think about it a minute. AA, the program of God, a spiritual awakening, and these traditions were countercultural. Do you agree? Well, AA is not self-help. The program in chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5 in the big book is not a self-help movement. We have a self-help movement today, which is the aftermath of alcohol, of AA. Writing in on the coattails are hundreds of organizations, many of, many of which are called anonymous, which are then called self-help. But the basic original program for hopeless men with, with a hopeless and helpless state of mind and body was God help and not self-help. Guess what? SA is also countercultural. SA today in 20th century America is contrary. The essence of our program, of our basic program, goes against our culture. That's something to think about. Uh, now, I want to give just a, a few glimpses into the defining moments of SA, just to give you a feel for history. And if any of you haven't uh, listened to the Oklahoma City tape in way back, what year was that, Sylvia, when we had that first? When? No, 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 no. Uh, 85, 86. Yeah. Uh, where we, uh, uh, for the first time, I had a whole bunch of slips of paper, went through the journals, went through the archives, and gave a chronological account of, 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 of all what we went through in the early origin. Some of that's in the paper from the central office, the notes on the early origin of SA. Uh, let me just give you a few of the, few of the, uh, uh, of the dates. April 24th, 74, Time Magazine, that's when Roy Kay picks it up, reads the article on alcoholism, and after 47 years, uh, 39 years of trying to stop, going to every conceivable remedy that the world had to offer, he went to his first, uh, first AA meeting. Uh, 5 December 1975, <laughs> 
Most, I don't know how many of you realize that we had four, at least four false starts in SA, four total disasters that flunked. Do you know that? Okay, you really, some of you are shaking their heads. Number one, 5 December 75, uh, he went in with a prostitute and her brother to the College House and Presbyterian Church in Hollywood. They had a meeting. The prostitute he had never had sex with but wanted to, they came together uh, in kind of a righteous moment of seeing what they could do. Nothing happened. That was first disaster. 31 January 76, Roy recovers his sobriety after a year and a half. He lost it. But 31 January 76, he found it again. Okay, now the second false start was Thanksgiving 77. He puts uh, an article in the L.A. Times. Adultery. Anyone who wants to stop but can't. Yes, we're serious. I put my home phone number in there. (laughs) And uh, within uh, 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 that week... I got the weirdest calls, all between 1.30 a.m. and, say, about 4 a.m. <laughs> all from men and all, de- just like they, you know, were freaking out in a stall somewhere in an adult bookstore. One of them, I swear, was the, uh, the L.A. Uh, rapist, serial rapist. But I'll never know. Nothing happened. I mean, I told them my story, and it kept me sober. I told every one of them my story. Everyone that called, about 30 guys called. Anyhow, nothing happened. So what happens? Um, try number three, 21 January 78, four AAs meet in Jim W.'s office in Simi Valley after an AA meeting with the big book, and we're going to talk about what? Sex, lust. And we had a marvelous meeting. The first time it was an AA meeting, but we were talking, you know, talking about our problem. And uh, Jim W. came up with the quirky statement at that time, we ought to call this Lustaholics Anonymous. Now think of that for a second. Lustaholics Anonymous. He hit it on the, on the button right then. And I haven't been able to trace the origin of Sexaholics Anonymous. I, I can't tell you exactly how that happened, but that was interesting. Okay, um, 24 January 79, Roy talks to Chuck C. in Laguna Beach because he's got to find, you know, he's got to find his people. Chuck C. Uh, turns him off. He says there's nothing wrong with this as long as there's no lust. And then he stopped talking, which is amazing for Chuck C. <laughs> and when he started again, he went on for about three hours giving me his blessing and all the knowledge he could give. And I don't know to this day what changed his mind from against to for. And I told him I don't have a partner. He, you know, he, he, he left me. He's not sober. And he said, God is your partner. Okay, number four. <clears throat> so although that thing, you know, after, after several meetings, that thing flunked out. I moved to my garage Nobody went, had some horror stories there, but anyhow, that, that flunked out. The fourth try, 4, 4 February 79, first essay meeting in Hollywood Press. We, there was Sexaholics Anonymous. There was a post office box. No, or, no there wasn't a post office. There was a, uh, another phone number that wouldn't identify with me. And uh, 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 I'll never forget that first meeting. Uh, 
was a notice in the paper, Sexologics Anonymous, something. And two men showed up and dressed in suits. And all they did was ask me questions. <laughs> and, um, but I got to tell them my story. So I think two cops from the Hollywood Vice Squad really, really got it right on. <laughs> The church kicked us out, so we had to move. Oh, the next meeting, uh, three or four guys from N.A. came in. First thing one of them said was, where are the broads? <laughs> they came because they weren't getting enough and they wanted more. But you know what they did? Now, Roy was standing there. He's not a leader. <clears throat> He's not an organizer. He just wants to go, and he wants to get find others who want sobriety, you know, to help him stay sober and to... Whatever. And um, but they said they took over the meeting. There was no agenda, no format. They took over the meeting and they had a business meeting and said, OK, this first meeting, uh, it's going to be based on the big book of AA. Boom. That's it. They never came back. But the meeting was based on the big book of AA. <laughs> OK, 6 November 79. Kevin B is two months sober. Let's see if I can read you what he said, uh, if I can find it. Yeah, uh, this is a, notice, a, note, a note from my journal. We prayed God would hurry up the process of growth so we could be useful to many. I can't believe we did. I, I don't remember some of those things, but it was very, very precious. Kevin B. was my connection. It's all I had for a while. He was the one I could call. And that calling, Kevin, in those that, that those early uh, in that early year of my sobriety, uh, was the beginning of my finding the one who's keeping me sober today. Now, do you believe that? That I have found the God for the lustaholic in the moment of my lust temptations. And in surrendering it to another sexaholic, somehow I let God in, and so did he. You all know 10 May 81, Dear Abby Hits, a woman in Chicago, writes, she's a, you know, she's got a husband and kids and, and she can't stop this. There's got to be something like AA and, and Dear Abby tells her, well, go see a shrink. And when I saw that, I had to tell Dear Abby, hey, there are three of us and, you know, th there's a solution. She's right. There is something like AA. So then, you know, what happened on, uh, on that? We got, uh, Iris and I got 3,000, some 3,000 inquiries and, um, one member here tonight <laughs> was from that batch. I don't think there's anybody else out of those 3,000. Uh, the first conference, Simi Valley. Uh, so that, the four things go down, see. And then the f number five is July 24th, 1981, the first conference in Simi Valley. Nine people show up in Simi Valley. We have a conference and, and a convention, and we have the first SA meetings together. They came from around, around the country. Everything was represented, every sex style, orientation, married, single, whatever, men, women, in those nine people. Can you believe that? Without exception, everything I just mentioned. And that's when we hammered out with a little contention here and there and some, some, <laughs> some sparks flying. But we hammered out unanimously. Where's Sylvia? There's, unanimously. 
the wording of the steps, the traditions, the, the meeting format, and, and what is sex, uh, holic and what is sobriety. Um, I have that listed somewhere. Now, what have I got here? Uh, 11 June 81. Ah, we'll forget that. Uh, one of the last defining moments of essay history was 8 December 1984. Phoenix, Arizona convention. That was our 84. It's our fourth convention. Let me just read this uh, from the uh, record. The Phoenix Convention. Oh, this is, I think, my journal again. SA's sobriety statement was brought before the business meeting, which at that time in SA's history passed on matters affecting SA as a whole. This turned into a session lasting about three hours where everyone had a chance to vent their views and feelings. Very rough. You have never seen emotion and anger like you've seen there. We had a few people here that were here then. <laughs> uh, when the vote was finally taken, it was unanimous in favor of SA's current sobriety statement. The turnaround in mood during this historic business meeting from knockdown drag out to total peace and serenity is one of the marvels of SA history. A motion was then made and carried recommending that all SA groups read what is a sexaholic and what is sexual sobriety. Then I have a notation down here. The fellowship is on its way. God is doing what for us what we could not do for ourselves. As soon as we got started, we found out that there are three that later that year we found out there are three other fellowships. SLAA, SAA, and SCA. And they had all been formed without knowledge of the others all in the late 70s, and I think we were the last kids on the block. They were formed for different reasons, whatever. But I don't think it's any accident. And um, God knows what he's doing, and I think we have to respect this historical phenomenon of which we are only a part. If I get to thinking that SA has it cracked, you know, I'll be the first to go in the dustbin of history. And uh, I, I, think, uh, I think one of the greatest problems we have in, in, in SA, which I was certainly guilty of uh, and may still be guilty of spiritually in some hidden recess of my soul, is arrogance. You know, the true believers. But we're going to be taking our inventory a little here pretty soon, and we're going to see exactly uh, what we do have, because that's what we got to do. Be rigorously honest with each other. Now, getting back to what it was yesterday. So what is SA's unique calling? Just going to quote from the White Book. The preface. This book is for those who want to stop their sexually self-destructive thinking and behavior. Page three and four. Lust has become an addiction. He can no longer tolerate lust. True sobriety includes progressive victory over lust. My basic problem as a recovering sexaholic is to live free from my lust. Step one, we admitted we were powerless over lust. Tradition three, the only requirement for membership is a desire to stop lusting. Why? What, the, what did this happen? I can't say why. This is, our pro, this, is the, this is the emphasis. There's a whole chapter on lust in the white book. And it's throughout the white book. 
Um, and this is what we'll be what we'll be talking about a little more today, and where we're uh, yesterday, and what it is today. So, SA goes through four false starts and a lot of agony. That's the crucible, you know. The crucible was really hot, guys. I mean, there was a fire. Those four false starts were. If I went into the detail of some of those things, um, you know, it wasn't pretty. The guys walking in the meeting, uh, you know, on the make, uh, stuff happening, and the failure, and the sickness in those early meetings. Unbelievable. Unbelievable sickness. The last one in, in January 79, trial four, uh, lasted for a few months, but man, that was sick. And it just folded after a few months. Just dead. Dead. People came in the second meeting, Sexual health and they, and they changed the whole thing. Sexual health anonymous. And we're going to do this. And they had the format. And Roy's sitting there. They've taken over that meeting. And and he's helpless because he's not a leader. They're more aggressive. They're more dynamic. They, uh, etc. Anyhow, a lot of fear. God saw us through it. As a matter of fact, I mean, I think God has done the same thing for us that He did in 1935. Meeting us in our total lostness. And, uh, and that's the blessing. However, where are we today now? Where are we today? Where is SA today? Little glimpse at the larger context. You know, we forget Sometimes that since we're in a fishbowl that, that, you know, until we get out, we can't see what it is. What is, uh, let's look at the 12-step movement today. Now, I've been in the, I've been in the 12-step movement in AA in 1974, and I've followed in my limited AA experience a few thousand meetings. I don't go to many AA meetings anymore, but in that intensive time in those first few years, I saw changes happening to AA. And I think the old timers, I think our, 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 our uh, non, uh, non-sexaholic trustee who has something like 41 years uh, can tell us more. But um, if we look at the 12-step movement as a whole, we see it has gone through tremendous changes. At one time I wrote some of these down because I was feeling, all you get here is what, you know, I don't speak for SA, you're just going to get my opinions my feelings, and uh, you take those from the source, whatever, and, and these are just my feelings. So I wrote a paper once on uh, keep coming back, it's not working. <laughs> you know, sometimes I wonder uh, what kind of personality I am. <laughs> I mean, I think of myself often as a pessimist, I'm a, a glass half empty person. You know, I'm pretty sure I'm not a glass half full person. But I think uh, for tonight, I hope I can be a realist, not a not an optimist or a pessimist, just a realist. Fifty-five point five milliliters of water are in the glass. There it is. It's not half empty. It's not half full. It's got that much. So uh, you you be the judge. 
I don't know how many of you have gone to other 12-step programs like I have, you know, the, 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 the other anonymous things, et cetera. And I haven't gone to that many, but I've been to, you know, maybe, oh, six or seven or eight. Um, symptoms of degeneration in the 12-step movement. There's been a devolution happening in the movement of which we're a part. You can't escape because we're part of history. Decreasing percentage of sobriety and recovery. AA doesn't have 50% anymore. The lost 12-step reality. Degeneration of meeting quality. The groupie syndrome. Prevalence of an invisible and other addictions. Um, the popularization of the program. Professionalization, medicalization, fragmentation, commercialization, secularization. God is dead. We're really self-help now, you know. So God, we, we pay kind of religious devotion to God in some of the 12-step movements. But uh, I wonder uh, where he is. Changes in the program, the primacy of feelings, meetings as therapy, the codependency wave, the victim focus wave, the inner child wave, the shame-based wave. What will be the next wave? Lost traditions, lost steps. Anyhow, um, let's be realistic uh, about the 12-step movement. I see signals in AA, and I certainly, uh, I'm much less involved in AA today, but I see signals like the grapevine. Some of these, I mean, the grapevine is coming too again, I think, and I stopped reading it for a long time. But it's coming too with real recovery and some good stories. I mean, I, I mean, there's some excellent stuff in that grapevine. I mean, it, it, uh, they're way ahead of us. Way ahead of us. And they're looking at things like, you know, they're mentioning, I see articles mentioning lust, mentioning sex for the first time. They're not afraid of it. They're just coming out a little. Okay, now I'm going to uh, take my inventory where I go to meetings. Essay today, that's all I know. I just get, you know, calls, emails, letters, but I don't know where Essay is today. But I know where Essay is today in Southern California. Pretty much. 55, 60 meetings a week. I think it's pretty close to 60 now. Um, but I'd like to tell you, uh, what I did was, uh, preparing, uh, after they told me to come here, I thought I'd go around and visit some of the groups in Southern California I hadn't been to for a while. First one I went to, I'll try not to slip and give the names of the groups. I think we should keep the anonymity. Uh, first one I went to was my favorite meeting in 1981. There weren't that many meetings there, you know, but it was my favorite meeting. It got up to 30 or 40 people. Uh, we had to rearrange the chairs. It was, it was for a long time my absolutely favorite meeting. I went there on my survey. It was closed. I went for the newcomers meeting. It was locked. There was some lone, creepy character in a car in the parking lot, which I thought might be the one who's waiting to see if nobody shows up, he's going to take off. I waited until he opened the door. Uh, we walked in and it was gloomy. The man was, he didn't know who I was, thank God. And, uh, you know, I could just feel the creep. Anyhow, it was a horror story. A newcomer walked in. He wasn't, nobody shook his hand. There was no literature. When the meeting started, there were three people. And by the end of the meeting, I think there were five. It was death warmed over. Okay, the next meeting I went to, I had uh, been asked to speak there 
uh, some years back, uh, maybe, I don't know. And uh, there must have been at least 40 people, men and women, vibrant group, you know, just like this is here, just like you are here. When I went back there, I walked in. There were three people in the room. The man leading the meeting had just lost his sobriety. The secretary of the meeting came in 15 minutes late. There was a newcomer. There was one newcomer, and, and it, was a to- it was lost. I mean, I just died. Meeting number three, two meetings in another city. You would have to do something drastic to me to get me to go into those two meetings today. I mean, it's, you know, what happens when a body molders in the grave? It just starts to, you know, doesn't it just start disintegrating? Okay, I'm going to tell you now uh, a meeting is very close to home for me, which somebody founded. Very, very close to home. That's off the map now. People go there with an old meeting directory and nobody's there. The door is locked. The founder of that meeting, who's been an essay almost since year one, lost his sobriety after several years and then could only get six months. And the last time uh, he had to give his guns away, he was suicidal and in danger of hurting somebody else. Another meeting I found out that I didn't go to that one of the other people from the intergroup went to, vibrant meeting, and there were just a few people there. And he found out to his dismay that they had deleted all sobriety requirements for any kind of leadership because there was no sobriety. Uh, on the other hand, there was a meeting uh, that we went to that had about six members. Everyone was sober. It was very vital, very vibrant. Another meeting way out, uh, gone down to nothing. Um, I don't know why these were part of the survey because I didn't get to make the whole survey, but why I'm trying to see, uh, I'm trying to, I guess the point I'm trying to make is tradition one. Somehow in each one of these meetings, our common welfare was lost. And there was no unity. But there was unity. Where was the disunity? Okay, that's what we're going to find out. What was wrong? There's a new intergroup in Southern California. And it just started. We had the first meeting. And by the way, the intergroup had gone down to almost nothing. And the new intergroup started with about seven or eight people. Some of those are here tonight. And the first thing they did in the very first meeting... Instead of having a business meeting, the chairperson asked each person around the circle to say, where are we with lust tonight? Where am I with lust? We went around the circle, and the honesty was unbelievable. One, we went around and, and told where we were with lust that today. And they came up with three generalizations in looking at this, um, well, after they did that, then each person was asked to give the, the major problem facing the groups they know about. And there were three generalizations that I wrote down. A tolerance for slipping and a support for slipping. SA is powerless over lust and needs God. 
the lack of interpersonal unity within the group coming from a spiritual awakening. Uh, one of the good things that's happening in the new intergroup is the chair and the secretary are going, making a very concerted effort to go to all groups, to contact all groups, so that we have representatives. And I make a plea here that every, at least every intergroup, send a representative to these conventions, even if you have to pay part of their way. That's a good thing. Now, now I'm going to take, tell you something what happened. One of the groups in Southern California that just happens to be, three years ago, had happened to spark a new impulse of back to basics back there, recently has had a decline in membership and, 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 and slipping. And so uh, they decided to do an inventory. An inventory, a group inventory is where we inventory ourselves against the traditions. We see how the group stacks up against each of the 12 traditions. But that inventory was started by the same technique that was used in the inner group. We first went around and told where each of us was with lust. I just want to read some of these that went around. Two years sober. I'm still in a lust relationship. If I don't look the second time, it's white knuckling it. I'm still drinking and I'm internet sober one week. Four and a half years. I'm sober sexually only. This is a female. Still in lust, fantasy and looking. Two and a half years sober. Not one day. I'm not one day sober from lust. Two and a half years sober, uh, technically sober. Thinking and worrying about it all the time. Fear lust. I need to keep the fear going, and I'm searching television. Four plus years sober. Listen to this guy. This guy has three sobriety dates. One is when he stopped sexual acting out, and another is the last time he looked at a magazine, and the third is the last time he was in danger of acting out. Good sobriety. And yet, his complaint is, that he's still obsessed with whether he's lusting or not. And it appears to be fear-driven. Okay, so here's the summary they came up with. And these are the actual words that were, that were spoken as the summary went around. What does all this tell us? In other words, after they did this inventory of their own lust, then we looked around at each other and said, what is this telling us? One person said, no person here is close to being completely free of lust. It is instinctual and wants to attack us. Another one said, everyone has, has a fight on his hands at different levels. Another one said, does anyone understand what sobriety from lust means? As a matter of fact, one person brought up the question, should we have a, a lust sobriety date? Another one said, we need more accountability to lust in this group. Another said, unless we bring our individual lust to the light, we're fooling ourselves. Another said, my lust breeds tolerance for lust in others, since I can't handle it. That's why I never ask how you are with lust. I expect you to help me hide mine. It's dishonesty at the very root. Now, what effect does this have if there's lust in a group? Well, what about the first tradition? What effect does it have on unity? You know what? If this is happening in my group... If there is 
this kind of thing, which we just read the inventory of, isn't that group divided spiritually? There's no group unity. There's superficial unity. There's business unity, perhaps. There's kind of a camaraderie unity. But man, I don't think, this is just my opinion, I don't think that group has unity. Why? We're still drinking. We've turned into periodic lust drunks. You know the difference between a daily drinker and a periodic. So we come into USA and we have this quasi-religious feeling that we're not supposed to do this and we agree with SA and look what's happening. See, what I'm looking at is second generation second generation because it, it got started out there. Uh, there's the, the original group. We used to get 70 people in that group. When you look at the turnover now, when I go every few months, I, I know only a few people. So what, what we see here is success and failure. And when we saw the number of hands, how many in this group would like to improve? How many are happy with their victory over lust today? How many would like to have more victory over lust today? I would like to uh, start winding this up by leading with my weakness again. Um, by giving you kind of a capsule summary of the history of my lust. Before I came into the program and got sexually sober, I did not know I was lusting. I did not know what lust was. Can you believe that? Yes. Yeah. Now, once I got sexually sober, I discovered lust. Anybody identify with that? Yes. Okay. Everybody. <laughs> Just about. What I discovered first, I was doing substitute teaching at a high school. I discovered every skirt, regardless of the age, was a trigger. And, and, and I was going to get whiplash if I just didn't watch out. And so it was, and I didn't know what lust was then, but I just knew that there was something going on here. The longer I was sober, the more I began to discover what lust was. So for a long time, the first stage of lust was the drool, the snatch, the drink, the look, the taking, the image, the trigger, and the powerlessness over that. That got, got, got better gradually as I brought those things to the light. In my third year, between my second and third year of sobriety, with people like Kevin I could call, I began to intervene on that lust. And I'd see something go by, and I'd say, Kevin, it, she just walked by and I'm dying inside. I picked up the phone and there he is. And before I picked up the phone, I was going to pieces inside, just out of control. And when I put, and, and I'd say, I just wanna, wanna surrender this to break the power it has over me. We didn't sponsor each other. We didn't tell each other what to do. Nobody told each other what step to work, but, um, when I put that phone down, I could breathe and I was free. And that happened hundreds and thousands of times. Now, um, that came to a crisis about my seventh year of sobriety in the post office experience. I'm sure most of you have heard about that experience where I uh, was in front of a trigger that was 
Here I was very active in the fellowship, and, and this trigger was an impossible trigger, and I knew that uh, in myself I had no control, no power, and she was just in front of me just a few inches in the line in the post office. I dropped my keys, and I didn't know I couldn't pick them up. Um, that, uh, I, I, the cry to heaven of total powerlessness of a sexaholic about seven years sober, you know, doing great in SA, and packages, you know, I was taking SA packages to the post office. Um, I had them in my hand. <laughs> and uh, I found out that what was keeping me sober was program activism. That's when I had to get, get back into the basics, like I had after a year and a half where I got my sponsor after a year and a half. What I did there was start working on where am I with my God? I, I discovered that I didn't have it. Roy K., seven years sober, did not have it. And so I started crying out. I had to do again. I had to do what the Alkies did in 1935. I had to find God or die. And I thought I had surrendered my will and life to my sponsor way back. But that was an easy thing. But here it was something new because I knew if I, if I wanted this victory over lust... I had to have a new relation with my, with my God. Let me just say something here while I think of it. We're talking about lust tonight, really. And Harvey uh, put his uh, finger on it last night when he said, acting out in your head. Acting in, some of us call it. I lost my train of thought on that. What was I talking about before I... Hmm? Yeah, find God or die. And um, that was the beginning of a new journey that opened up a whole new area of my recovery. And I began working the 11th step. I began praying. I began more surrender. Um, several years ago... I had another experience where I experienced, and that, that got progressively better, where I, I, was, I didn't have to drink. I didn't have to take the first look. And then one day I had an experience where I was talking with a woman for the first time in another 12-step program. We were talking for about an hour on program and recovery. The woman was dressed uh, very modestly, was not a trigger at all, and I've told this before in meetings, and... Uh, uh, I felt this strange connection, this beautiful connection with program. And when I left, drove all the way home, I couldn't get her out of my mind. And uh, for the next two weeks, I discovered I was obsessed with this person. And that was the lust of the misconnection, the soul connection. It wasn't the I connection. It wasn't the lust connection, but it was lust. It was another form of lust. Connect with me and make me whole. And uh, I had to come to another step seven on that and be willing to give that up absolutely. Another member describes it this way, eye-touching, soul connection, whatever. Um, the, last the last layer that I can discover, not the final one, but the most recent one, I'm sure that there are others, was just last year where I'm at Costco 
and I'm eating in the restaurant, kind of a few tables by the, by the cash registers, eating a great big uh, Polish sausage and a hot dog with everything on it. <laughs> that may have had something. That may have had something to do. <laughs> <laughs> I've never in my life slobbered everything on something like that. You know, I just really went whole hog. Anyhow, uh, pretty soon I'm eating and enjoying the thing, and uh, this woman and a couple of daughters sits down, and uh, they were there was nothing in, in the in the you know uh, middle-aged woman uh, dressed down uh, casual. There was nothing sexual or in the body or in the triggering, but just something about I don't even know what it was the way they sat down or something, and I found myself looking at this woman's face. Just looking at her, you know, kind of in a daze, and uh, she must have felt that because she glanced at me for about a tenth of a second and then averted her eyes. You know what? That tenth of a second glance told me something that I didn't want to hear. And what it told me once I inventoried it and really got honest with it was is there something there for me? You know, it was another more subtle form of the misconnection. And that attitude, you know, it, it might seem innocuous, but that is death to me and to my relationship with anybody else, especially my wife. But with anybody, that, that, because that's, God isn't here. God isn't enough for me. Is there something there for me? You know, And so when I did a new third on that, and by the way, uh, Recently, I've come to the conclusion in sponsoring people that, man, if you do your third step, you're going to add a word to that third step, and that's lust. You know, turning your will and life over to God, that's a generic thing. That's easy, right? We can just do that at a snap of the finger. But, man, am I going to turn my lust over to God? That's the thing. So what I did was, I said, I don't want any of any of this. And I see a new sense of freedom. And I can't tell you the freedom that, that this new victory Brings and that wasn't. I didn't do that all the time, but but that one incident, uh, it was a rare thing. But that one incident told me I'm not there yet. I'm not there yet, and um, but I'm so grateful to be where I am today that I don't that today I didn't have to take the first look, I didn't have to drink, and I didn't have to misconnect. And now, as a result of that step, when I did that seventh step, I said. Lord, no more knots in my sobriety, in my lust recovery. I don't want any more knots. Don't do this, and I'm not going to do this, and I'm not going to do this. That's, not, that's fear-driven negative sobriety. I said, I want something positive to take the place. I want you in that look. I want you so that I can give in that look. And I can, instead of seeing what's there for me to give. And uh, that's possible. It's beginning to happen. And for me, I've got every single defect you guys have. So that's a miracle, and there's hope. Now, I'd like to tell you, uh, we've just been hitting today. <laughs> What's tomorrow? What will tomorrow be like in SA? Okay, what do you think? In two words. Okay, he just said what AA is today. Any other t any other comments? What will SA be 
tomorrow. We're not speaking of your group or my group. We're speaking a kind of generalities. Yeah? Higher power. Higher power. Any other takers? We don't know. Whatever God wants. Bold debtor. Huh? Bold debtor. Bold debtor? Oh, I still didn't get it. Okay. Um, well, you know what I think we're going to have tomorrow is more of what we have today. And so the question I ask is, is your, are you as an individual and as your group, are you satisfied? Okay. How many are not satisfied? Not satisfied. Okay, I, I hold to the opinion that God in his wisdom creating at least four different fellowships in the late 70s knew what he was doing. Nobody but God knows what he is doing. If S.A. cannot deliver on the lust recovery promise of its program, history will say they didn't deliver. They couldn't deliver. And lust is the impossible addiction. Do you know what I mean by that? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Are you powerless over lust like I am? It's the impossible addiction. I mean, the sex, forget the sex. I mean, the sex is easy. Anybody can just go through a little bit of withdrawal and some don't and, and get sober sexually. They may not stay sober. But the lust, whatever this new lust is, this image-driven, the spiritual force that it's in the air. And the new lust that we have, it's like, how can I describe it? I wish I had the, the illustrative ability of some of our speakers. It's like the... Huh? No, but let me, let me put it this way. It's as though the spirit of every luster and everyone who wanted to be lusted after, man, woman, and child... It's as though that spirit is in the air around us in the whole planet. How can that be? Because of the media, television alone, plus the magazines and the news. I mean, you know, everything. I mean, just think about it. We live in an image-saturated culture. So the spirit. And so I, as a lustaholic, as a powerless lustaholic, feel... I don't have these defenses in myself. Some of you may have. But I feel the force of this every time I'm tempted. So that's the real lust. Now, here's what I'm going to recommend. That we humble ourselves before God and look at SA and look at our groups and look at ourselves honestly. First of all, I'm going to say, let's take our inventory. A real inventory where we start with where we are on lust. I mean, it's easy to take the sobriety inventory. And the 12 traditions, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's more involved, but we can do that as a group. But let's take our lust inventory. Let's go around the table. That was a blessed experience when we did that in the inner group and when we did it in this other group. A blessed, a, 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 it was an illuminating experience, it, a revelatory experience. It made the group one for the first time. It made that group one for the first time, even in its big heyday three years ago. It wasn't what we had in that circle. 
Try it under God in a direct honesty and be willing to take the risk of say what you are doing today and where exactly where you are today. Let's take our inventory. And you know what? When you take it, send it into essay. Maybe we need a dialogue. Maybe we need to see the SA inventory on lust. Because maybe we're going to discover that the SA in your group or mine, that the SA is powerless over lust. That its servants from the beginning, that its literature, that its meetings are powerless over lust. And that we need a new breakthrough. We need a new breakthrough with God, just like in 1935. And so, from where I stand, I'm presenting the fellowship today with a plea to look and listen to each other under God and see where we're at. So, why as a fellowship, I think as a fellowship, as a group, maybe not your group, but I think in my groups, we need to take step one as a group. This group is powerless over lust and its life, its spirituality is unmanageable. And then go from there into the other steps. Let me share something with you. And I'm, I'm come, I'll, I'll close in, in uh, just a couple of minutes. Alcoholics Anonymous has a yearly conference. In 1997, the General Service Conference was held in New York City. It had a title, a theme, something about spirituality was their theme for that conference. The trustees do a written, uh, give a presentation. There are selected trustees that get up before the whole trustees and the delegates and give a theme talk on the theme of the, on how they see the theme of the convention in their particular aspect of service work. This one man who is Michael A., this is what he said. I'll just read part of his, his talk. I believe I was privileged to be present at one of the most historic moments in the annals of Alcoholics Anonymous. This is last year. Clearly reflected by the unanimous selection of spirituality, our foundation, as the theme for this conference. Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous in the group conscience of the fellowship as a whole, Wait a minute. I'm not reading this right. As the theme, Alcoholics Anonymous, in the group conscience of the fellowship as a whole, faced its own fears last year and made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. AA is having the courage to face the failure in AA. Do you know that? And I rejoice in this thing. Because in Southern California, I saw AA going down the tubes. They've had the courage to be honest and take their own inventory and face the fear. AA have fear? Why, they're the, they're the god of the 12-step movement. No. They humbly came together and saw the reality. I'm not sure what these fears were, because I haven't read that whole conference report. It's available, by the way. Made a decision to turn our will in our lives over the care of God as we understood him. AA did their third step as a fellowship last year. 
the miracle of continuing spiritual awakening became tangible in the conference. Our bonds to one another were freshened and strengthened as Alcoholics Anonymous listened to the language of its own heart and took the third step. I just want to challenge us in our groups, wherever you're at, and as a fellowship. I think we need to take the first step as a fellowship on lust. That essay is powerless over lust. And that that can be the beginning of a new awakening. Because I think for most of us, and not all, but for most of us with a show of hands, we haven't broken the lust barrier in SA. You know what the sound barrier is that they broke with airplanes? You know what the wall is when a baseball uh, fielder goes back and he, he hits the wall? He can't jump any higher. He can't go back any farther. He misses the ball. He's hit the wall. In my experience with a great number of SAs and SA groups, We've hit the wall on lust, regardless of our numbers. And I'm asking that we humble ourselves and not look at the numbers and test ourselves before God. Now, I'm going to close with this story. Just recently, a couple of us have started an essay meeting in a theological seminary, kind of not an essay, you know, just, just getting together with sex drunks. And... Um, With the five members, uh, we found uh, one sober member. And uh, in our second meeting, we talked about lust. And we went around and told where we were with lust. And the honesty was just like in the inner group and with this other group I was telling you about. It broke it open. And we saw these men for the first time, just as they were. And so another member and I challenged these people, what are you going to do about it? What's the solution? First we said, can you, have you done a third step on lust? And have you done a seventh step on lust? And the one guy said, no. I mean, that's just out of the question. It's just out of the question. He's a, a young single man, has a girlfriend, He's attractive, dynamic, athletic, personable, charismatic, articulate, intelligent, beautiful person. I mean, you just look at the guy walking in. You'd never think, you know, he had, he had problems with lust. And uh, one of the other members then said, well, my lust is I, I, I'm still looking. At, I'm technically sober, but I'm still looking at pornography. Anyhow, so we asked... The other person, he says, no, I can't, I can't, I can't do that. I've turned my will and my life over to God, yeah, when I came in the program, but I can't do this with lust. So then we said, can you do it for 24 hours? And he just, he gave up, threw up his hand. I said, how about 12 hours? No. How about just the rest of this day? He said, no. Then I said, Okay. And I want to challenge you all with this tonight. What if you just made a decision to give up your right to lust in the next temptation only and ask God to keep you sober from that temptation? What if you did that? And you know what he said? Yeah, but what about number two? <laughs> 
I said, how do you know if you do number one, if you succeed, and how do you know what your consciousness will be like? You know, did, at the end of that meeting, we were down on our knees on the floor, and these two men asked God, gave up the right to lust just in the next temptation. And this guy called me a week later, the guy who, you know, impossible, the young, good-looking guy, and he said, Roy, I haven't had a drink since. Haven't had a drink since. And all he did was absolutely give up the right to the next fantasy or look and ask God to keep him sober just from that. Something happened. That's what happened in 1935. That's what happened. We've got a new program. Let's not be deluded by sexual sobriety. I'll close with this. You know, the man said... He wasn't popular. He said, enter by the narrow gate because wide is the gate and broad is the path that goes to destruction and many go in there, but narrow is the gate and difficult is the way that leads to life and few there be who find it. Which way do you want today? Do you want victory over lust? You can do it right tonight. You can go. You can go with somebody sitting next to you in your room, with a sponsor, with anybody you can grab, and you can just say, you can get down and do what Mike did on the floor of that seminary and say, I give up the right to the next lust, and I ask you to keep me so That's it. I mean, just keep it simple. You know what these guys were doing when they first started praying? They, they, they pray up a storm. They're religious people. And we had to say, hold it. Stop. Start over. Hey, you know, you've done that all your life, haven't you? Yeah, well, okay. Okay, so, so keep it simple. You're gonna do you're gonna do this and this. You're gonna give it up just the next and ask sober. Finally, after the third try, they did it. It worked. God bless you all. like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.